hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 168, we have a special edition episode recorded from Vancouver, Canada at the 2019 ARVO meeting. At this meeting, the DRCRnet announced the results of the Protocol V clinical trial that examined anti-VGF versus laser versus observation for patients with diabetic macular edema in very good vision, defined as 2025 or better. This two-part episode will start with two of the senior investigators on the study, Dr. Jennifer Sun and Dr. Carl Baker, discussing the study's design and results. For the second half, Drs. Emily Chu and George Williams will join the program to discuss real-world implications for practice. The full published manuscript was published in JAMA on April 29, 2019, and is available online. A link will be listed in the episode description and on our website. A list of financial disclosures are available in the episode description. Also, remember some podcast episodes, including this one, will now qualify for CME credits. To claim your credits, visit the Academy website. A link will be placed in the episode description for qualifying episodes. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now privileged to be joined by two of the senior investigators from the recent DRCRnet Protocol V study published publication. Um, this study uh, was entitled Effect of Initial Management with a Flibercept versus Laser Photocoagulation versus Observation on Vision Loss Among Patients with Diabetic Macular Edema Involving the Center of the Macula and Good Visual Acuity. This was a randomized clinical trial published in JAMA this week in April 29, 2019, with the results presented uh, here at ARVO um, on April 29, 2019, uh, in advance of the publication. I'm first joined Dr. Jennifer Sun uh, from Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Sun, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having us. And I have Dr. Carl Baker, who's the first author on the paper. Dr. Baker, thank you for being here. It's it's a pleasure, Jay. So, and I'll let Dr. Sun start. Um, let's start with a little background about why this study was initially uh, designed, and why was this such an important issue that had to be assessed, before we kind of talk about the methodology of how the design. Sure. Well, the, the central question that Protocol V asks is really, is there one best management strategy for eyes with center-involved diabetic macular edema, but that still have good vision, 2025 or better, despite that edema? And you know, I think this is relevant to many of our practices because this is a very common clinical finding. We saw large percentages of, of eyes in the EPDRS um, that had vision of 2020 or better or 2025 or better. Um, and we see this all the time in, in clinical practice, particularly as we've uh, developed technologies like optical coherence tomography that lets us diagnose diabetic macular edema quite early in many patients who still may be symptomatic. So I think what we realized is that there hasn't previously been much clinical trial guidance for how to manage these eyes. You know, we do have results from other large phase three trials, such as Protocol I, uh, Protocol T, Ride and Rise, and Vivian Vista, which clearly show that initial management or immediate management with anti-VEGF injections is beneficial in eyes that are visually impaired with vision of 2032 or worse. Um, and the Ride Rise data has showed us that if you delay treatment for two years or more, that, um, you know, again, these eyes that have vision of 2032 or worse don't quite catch up to the eyes that were immediately treated with anti-VEGF as they present. But we really weren't sure if that was 
going to be the case for eyes with good vision. And in fact, we felt that there were there were some reasons. We certainly know that macular edema can come and go in some patients. And uh, there, you know, there are certain patients that we see who might be hesitant to start injections right away, since uh, these are given on a monthly basis. Since we know there are there are some uh, small risks associated with them, risk of endophthalmitis, other complications, costs associated with them. Um, and so the, the real question was, was it important to start immediate treatment with anti-VEGF or with laser photocoagulation in these eyes, you know, or could they be safely observed? So, Dr. Baker, let's talk a little bit about the design of the study, because I think it's always very interesting. There's a lot of time and energy that goes into designing a study to, to kind of achieve what Dr. Sun talked about in terms of giving us good answers that, that may be applicable for, for many years to come. So uh, let's talk about the methodology. How were these uh, patients recruited, and what um, sort of grouping was done, and, and what sort of things were done to standardize these groups? Well, first of all, you know, uh, like Jenny was saying, we there were a lot of different treatment strategies being used for these uh, these patients, and not a lot of good data to support the best, you know, what might be the best. So, since we were dealing with patients that had good vision, we felt that even a small amount of visual change, like one line of vision, would be a clinically relevant change in a population of good seeing patients. So as our primary outcome, you know, we designed it to, to assess, uh, you know, if there was going to be a difference in the loss of one line of vision over the course of two years. And, you know, we did have some data going back to the ETDRS study that suggested that focal laser uh, did, you know, eyes that received focal laser did a better job of maintaining vision than eyes that were treated with observation. Of course, that study was done in the days that that anti-VEGF was not available to, to treat an eye if it did lose vision. So uh, we did our best estimate to determine, you know, uh, to power the study, to be able to tell a difference between these, these three treatment strategies, and we, we actually enrolled 702 patients, which was, it, it is the largest uh, interventional trial the DRCR Retina Network has, has undertaken. And then let's talk, I mean, the, I think the, the biggest thing takeaway, right, is, is the results of this study. Uh, and, and there's going to be a lot of, I'm sure, sub-analyses and discussion that come. But just starting with the, the, the basic results. So the primary outcome was visual acuity and, and a decrease in baseline at two years. Dr. Sun, in terms of the primary outcome for the study, what did we find with the groups that were assigned between observation, laser therapy, and aflibercept therapy? Mm-hmm. So we found as our primary results that there was not a statistically significant difference between rates of one line or more vision loss at two years. Um, we saw rates of 16%, 17%, and 19% of uh, five-letter or more, one-line or more vision loss in the aflibercept, laser, and observation groups, respectively. I think one thing that's very important to realize so as you look at these primary results, um, and Carl has certainly emphasized this in his primary presentation of the data, is that what we randomized the eyes to were very much three different management strategies. And so, you know, one was just immediately starting with intravitreous aflibercept, treating uh, with the same PRN algorithm that we used in the DRCR network protocol T. The second uh, and third treatment strategies were to initially start with laser or with observation. But then we followed these eyes very carefully, and if uh, the eyes worsened in vision 
at any visit during the course of the two years by 10 letters or more or at two consecutive visits by five to nine letters or more, we then instituted treatment with a flibercept. So again, the, you know, the strategies were not monotherapy with a flibercept laser or observation, but, but really a flibercept as, as treatment was part of the strategies for both the laser and the observation groups. And, and looking at some of the, the other data that comes out, and that's a great point you referenced. Um, it, it was interesting to see that if you look over two years, what, how many patients received, for example, an injection, regardless of group. And even in the observation group, it was only about a third of the patients. And when you adjust for to drop out, it's 34%. That means two-thirds of these patients at two years didn't require injection. And if you look at the visual acuity, the proportion of patients who maintain 20-20 or better Snell and visual acuity, again, it's about two-thirds for the observation group. The converse, maintain 22 or better. Uh, Dr. Baker, did these results, and again, when you design a study, uh, did these results um, surprise you in terms of how stable some of these patients were over two years? That, that's a great point, um, particularly in the eyes that were observed. We're going to be doing, obviously, some more uh, assessment of that group. But, you know, the fact that two-thirds of those eyes never required treatment and the mean visual acuity in all three groups was 20-20, after two years, using these strategies was very uh, was very interesting. I wouldn't say it was surprising. I mean, we, we the clinicians that were participating in this trial, we had many discussions ahead of time, and, and we we were certainly aware that that eyes with good vision with diabetic macular edema uh, could have spontaneous resolution of the edema. We just you know didn't know to what extent, and I think you know hopefully. Uh, using this study and doing a little more analysis of that data, we, we will get a better handle of what happens to the eyes that, that get observed. But, you know, at the end of the day, we, we you know, it's a, as, as Jenny pointed out, our, our, the groups that we studied, we, we did not just put a person in this trial and observe them for two years without treatment. We observed them, and if they lost vision, we were then starting a flibercept. So it was a strategy and it seems to be a strategy that's, that's worth looking at or it's very appropriate for treating, you know, eyes with good vision and center of all diabetic macular edema. I think that the, you know, the results that you were talking about in terms of really just um, uh, a quarter of the, the laser treated eyes needing a flibercept treatment during the trial and just a third of the observation group eyes needing treatment with a flibercept during the study really points to how visually stable many of these eyes can remain over, you know, over clearly at least two years. And those are great points. And Dr. Baker, you referenced, you know, the, a lot of, some of these studies in the past have shown, and for example, in various different retinal conditions, sometimes there's no visual acuity difference, but there may be an anatomic difference. Um, the CSTs, though, really weren't different between the three groups. Um, and the final point, the other secondary outcome you, you all looked at was the, the severity of diabetic retinopathy. And this is a very hot topic. There's other studies specifically looking at this. We've had you know, post-hoc analyses from major clinical trials such as Rise and Ride and Vivint Vista looking at severity scores. Again, no real huge differences. You might say two years is a very short amount of time. Um, but again, only about 10% of these patients vary either in terms of two-step improvement or worsening in, in the laser and observation groups. So again, this kind of speaks to the stability of these patients over the two years. As far as how it ends up with the functional outcomes, uh, I mean, I think the data is pretty clear that, that the mean visual acuities 
are, are uh, we would expect them to be the same, whether you started a patient uh, on average in with uh, a or observation. So I, I feel much more comfortable, you know, being able to closely follow a patient now and, and not feel that I'm going to end up with a, an inferior result because of that strategy. Obviously, uh, the, the interesting thing about this study is that we actually did allow for individual, uh, you know, responses to treatment. And if someone was not doing well, uh, they were given a flibrocept. So it, 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 uh, as a clinician, I found that this is a very, very helpful strategy. And, and uh, you know, I look forward to uh, implementing that in my practice. One of the things that always has to be discussed in any trial are, are limitations, and we'll just end by, by discussing some of those. Uh, and again, you outlined this very nicely in the paper. Um, one of the things that's going to be brought up again is is clinical trials. Um, sometimes these patients, you know, have different sort of glycemic and systemic control and visit compliance than in real world, and usually it's better. And, and this study court did have very good glycemic control, uh, and there was very little loss to follow up. Dr. Sun, in terms of, of real-world applicability and, and maybe the criticism that might be of the study, how do you kind of interpret that? And, and Dr. Baker referenced the glycemic control. Uh, and, and in terms of applicability, do you still think that uh, despite that, this is still important given the strength and the power of the study and, and the design? Sure. So, you know, I think the first thing that's really important to recognize is, as with every clinical trial that we do, you know, the results that we report out um, are typically based on average outcomes across the entire group of, of patients that we've enrolled. And so, you know, our conclusion looking at this data is that observation may be a very reasonable strategy for, for treating these eyes as a whole with good vision despite center-involved DME because many of them do so well with initial observation um, and, and holding off treatment unless the vision worsens. At the same time, there are going to be considerations with any individual patient and individual eye that you know, will be important for physicians to, to look at as they're making these individualized treatment decisions. The reassuring thing, I think, is that all three of these groups did very, very well. As, as Carl said, the mean visual acuity at two years was 20-20 in all these groups, and approximately 85% of all the groups had vision of 20-25 or better. So I think any one of these three treatment strategies leads you know, again, on average, to great results. And there might be things that would make me want to, um, you know, choose laser photocoagulation in a certain patient or immediate aflibercept in another patient um, that might be relevant. Nonetheless, I do think that this study provides sort of an important context for understanding as you're making those treatment decisions. You know, and the fact that, in general, our patient cohort had reasonably good glycemic control with an um, mean A1C of 7.6 across all groups. Um, you know, again, it's something that you, you just need to put into the context of how does this relate to your your particular patient population. Dr. Baker, any thoughts before we break? Any final thoughts on the, what Dr. Sun was just referencing in terms of the glycemic control? Well, I, I think uh, that's part of being a good doctor is, is to uh, encourage uh, you know, compliance and, uh, you know, engage your diabetic patients into taking control of the systemic factors that are clearly involved in, in how their clinical course goes. So I, I think uh, there's nothing about this study that, that uh, makes it not applicable, but I, I do think, uh, uh, you know, in the clinical trial setting, you, you, 
you typically see better results than maybe in the real world because of the protocols that you follow. And I guess I would just say um, in order to try to get those same results uh, in clinical practice, uh, the, the one thing that makes a difference is, is how, how closely we follow the patients and how we stick to our protocols. So, you know, I don't think we are asking uh, if we, if we're asking clinicians to, to, to consider doing uh, the same kind of thing in their practice, it's not too different than the way we already uh, engage patients. I mean, if we observed a patient in this trial, we were, we were seeing them every eight to 16 weeks, depending on their disease. And, uh, you know, that's not too different than how we're currently asking, you know, patients with you know, potential vision threatening diabetic retinopathy to be seen. So, and there's one other point I'd like to make about how, how we, uh, you know, how we executed the protocol is that we, we did use uh, OCT testing to determine how uh, the, the clinical course was, was affecting our patients. And if the OCT worsened, we would, we would see these patients more often in the trial. But one thing is, is kind of clear, and, and Judy said this earlier, we didn't just start doing a flibrocept injections just because the OCT worsened. We used it as a tool to enhance our surveillance of the disease, but we actually used visual acuity changes to trigger uh, starting people on a flibrocept. Well, Dr. Jennifer Sun, Dr. Carl Baker, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, the studies hop off the press just presented, and uh, really, really important will be Again, a source for much discussion in the coming months at retina meetings. And uh, there'll be a lot of sub-analyses you guys referenced. There will be more digging. We'll get a lot more information, for example, on that observation group and and what happens with them and maybe different factors that result in uh, maybe some risk stratification, like you said, in terms of deciding who who does need to be followed more closely or or treated more aggressively. So thank you both for your time, and I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having us, Jay. We're looking forward to, to further discussions about this data. Thank you very much, Jay. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now privileged to be joined by two retina specialists to discuss the take-home points and implications of the DRCRNet Protocol V study. Uh, first, in alphabetical order, Dr. Emily Chu from the National Eye Institute. Dr. Chu, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Dr. George Williams from um, the Associate Retina Consultants in Royal Oak, Michigan, part of, uh, was affiliated with Beaumont. Dr. Williams, thanks so much for joining us here. Thank you, Jay. So uh, discuss, thinking of Protocol V, and I'll start with Dr. Chu. Um, it, one of the things that this study kind of looked at was maybe um, – and give me a second just to, to pull it up. You know, one of the things that this trial emphasized is that th- there may be some issues in terms of public health implications, right? So th- this trial, looking at these these patients with good vision receiving injections, um, it, it's, it's sometimes hard for clinicians who read the study or read the coverage to kind of figure out how to apply um, these studies to their patients. So when examining a clinical trial, and it, particularly for this study, for the Protocol V study, what are kind of the things that we look at to, to figure out how, what is generalizable about the findings and what sort of things limit the generalizability of findings in a trial like this? 
Well, this study is extremely important. This impact is, is tremendous on how we practice. For many years, we have never done a study in which we looked at patients with good vision and macrodema involving the center, diabetic macrodema involving the center of the, of the macula. Uh, and the good vision patients have always been lumped into our previous studies in which there are impaired vision. And I think it's been the traditional for clinicians to just inject these patients. And this probably, now we have evidence suggesting that we can either inject right away or wait until the vision goes down a little bit and not not really lose very much. So that's a tremendous help to our patients because you know, a lot of them don't eventually need it. But the caveats, of course, are this is a clinical trial. Volunteers that come for a clinical trial are usually a little bit more health conscious or are, are quite uh, perhaps looking just at their A1C level. They're pretty good. These are well-controlled patients. So your average diabetic patient comes to the door and not going to be as well-controlled. So you have to remember how to apply that information, whether they're in good control or not, uh, making sure that your patient is, in fact, in good control. And this protocol demands a good adherence to follow-up. They have to come back you know, frequently to make sure the vision isn't dropping and then not the opportunity to actually treat them. So the compliance is another issue. So it really behooves the clinician to know the patient and be able to say, this is a patient I can rely on. And persons with diabetes have a lot more comorbidities, and it's more difficult for them to always make their appointments. You know, Dr. Williams, expanding on what Dr. Chu said about control of diabetes, for example, uh, it, it seemed like the patients in this trial had good A1Cs or better than we may encounter in our real-world population. Uh, given that, I mean, and that's going to be brought up as a limitation of this study, um, how do you interpret the results in, in light of that in terms of applications to your own patients? Well, I think we always have to recognize that in virtually all of the clinical trials that gener generate this important data for us, we're dealing with a self-selected, highly motivated motivated patient population. So these are individuals who have sought out centers of excellence, want to participate in a clinical study. And so they are distinctly different than the general diabetic population. As Dr. Chu noted, the A1Cs in this population were actually strikingly good. There were patients below seven the mean, I believe, was 7.6. So those are, those are pretty good numbers, particularly when we consider that this was predominantly a type 2 population. And so we do have to recognize that uh, the applicability of, of this motivated population can be difficult to the general population. So Issues particularly such as follow-up, I think, are critical. Uh, these are folks who are likely to come back. And that's a decision that I think clinicians are going to have to make when they see an individual with good visual acuity, as defined by the study, and minimal central diabetic macular edema. What is your confidence that this patient a, understands their disease, and B, will be returning for the necessary follow-up. And that, that's often difficult. Like again, as Dr. Chu pointed out, these folks often have a lot on their plates. 
uh, and it can be difficult from a uh, just from a, a social networking perspective for them to be able to return for appropriate follow-up. So I think when I look at data such as this, that's one of the the key factors I ask myself is is how engaged is this individual in their disease, and what is the likelihood that they're going to return for the necessary follow-up? Sorry, may I ask you a question, George? I, this is something I've been wor- thinking about, and this this is the issue about good vision. You know, the, in the clinical trial, we refract the vision. Everybody gets refracted. It comes in to see how good they are, and if they've got 20, 25th or better, they fit into this category. So, what would most clinics do who are busy retina practices where we don't normally refract? We might do a pinhole. How would we address that issue in real life, George? So that's a great point, and I was going to bring that up a little bit later in the discussion. The way I deal with it clinically is I ask, are the patients symptomatic? And so if a patient is asymptomatic, that's a pretty good surrogate for good vision. Now, of course, you can have a good vision in one eye and, and decreased vision in the fellow eye, and patients can be asymptomatic. But after I see that individual, one of the key questions I ask them is, do you think you have a problem? And if the visual acuity is good, in my practice, everyone gets an auto refraction, obviously not as good as a a detailed uh, refraction, but I think it's a pretty good surrogate for how well patients are functioning. And so if the individual tells me that they're that they're functioning well, they're essentially visually asymptomatic, uh, and I have a, a decent visual acuity, I think you're absolutely right, Emily. We can't draw a hard line in the sand here and say 2025 20, in a study is different than 2030 or even 2040 in the real world. So I like to find out whether or not the patient's actually are symptomatic. And I find that people who are asymptomatic are not very motivated about any type of treatment. And I think this data, again, provides us with uh, excellent information that we can now tell our patients that there's really little downside to watching you over time. At that same time, we have to emphasize that although we can follow you, you need to return so that we can be sure that we're not seeing progression of the disease. And and to that point, Dr. Williams, one of the things that was noted in the paper was the observation group was eligible for therapy as they were followed. Um, And and about a third, just rounding, about a third of those patients over two years received at least one treatment with a flibercept. Dr. Chu, in the context of that, and you talked about the clinical trials do have better follow-up. Dr. Williams already talked about emphasizing follow-up to patients. But what sort of, does that have any impact on the type of follow-up you recommend to patients? Does this surprise you at all that a third of these patients with very good vision do end up needing treatment at some point based on the study criteria? Oh, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I mean the other way to look at it is two-thirds actually didn't need it. I think in the past they would have been treated. So I think uh, it's not surprising to me that, that we would have these good results because nobody's really looked. And I think this, this to me is not surprising. And it all points to the fact that this strategy of immediate treatment versus uh, waiting until you have some 
vision decrease seems to be very effective uh, in really reducing the load for both the patient and their family uh, and also for society in general, actually. So I think it's, it's a really a very important outcome and the patients have the most to gain because injections are not fun. It's, it has a small risk, a very small risk of endocomitis, but if you can avoid it in two years, that's really big. And Jay, I would point out that the study had, had what I would consider to be fairly rigid criteria for treatment. And they involved uh, those criteria involved relative, I would say, relatively subtle changes in visual acuity, uh, less than two lines. And so, again, I think one of the challenges and opportunities for us as we try to apply this data to our clinical practices is do the patients actually detect this change in their visual acuity? Um, five letters is, uh, is, is oftentimes not clinically relevant to an individual patient. Yeah, maybe not. And I think the other rule is that they drop 10 letters at one visit, then you are likely to be symptomatic. I think two lines are symptomatic. I think you're right about that, George. But if they're going down slowly five and five and you know on say within two or three months, then they're sort of going down that direction that, that that's so important to know what direction they're heading and and, uh, and I guess these are subtle and, and, and again the patient won't notice it. And, and it's too bad we don't have patient reported outcomes that kind of could tell us whether one or the other, but I suspect we had with patient reported outcomes, there may be some interesting findings of whether you get treatment or not. But you're absolutely right. It can be very symptomatic. And, and Dr. Chu, to your point about the two-thirds not requiring treatment, similarly, if they looked at patients' percentage of eyes with 20-20 or better vision at the two-year this was a point, and this was a secondary outcome, two-thirds of the observation group was still 20-20 at two years, which is actually encouraging, I think, um, that, you know, yeah. diabetic retinopathy, again, in the controlled study population, maybe a more compliant population, as Dr. Williams suggested, I mean, diabetic retinopathy can be very stable and patients can pr- maintain very good vision for a long time. Um, you know, in two years is not a lifetime for these younger patients, but it's still a, a pretty good amount of time where vision can be preserved. Absolutely agree. You know, the last thing just to, to kind of talk about, um, and, and this is another secondary outcome, was um, diabetic retinopathy severity score, which is always a hot topic. Um, there's other studies that are kind of looking at the effect of anti-VEGF on severity scores. Um, and again, it, the, the, these are patients with good vision. The, the two-step improvement or two-step worsening was really not different between the groups, whether it was observation, laser, or flibercept. And the rates of worsening or improvement um, were, you know, from the observation group, right around 10% in, in either side. Again, did the, Dr. Williams, I'll ask you, you know, did those numbers surprise you? About one out of 10 diabetics uh, may get worse, one out of 10 may get better. And again, we're using severity scores based on the photographs, which is not necessarily what we use in the clinic. But um, again, it seems to suggest pretty good stability in terms of diabetic retinopathy stage. I agree. And this may be a reflection of the relatively short follow-up. Two years is, is two years, but in the course of someone with diabetic retinopathy, that's a relatively short biopsy. And so I think we, it'll be interesting to see if uh, DRCR is going to provide us with additional data 
But again, I think that the take-home message is that there appears to be very little downside to waiting in these individuals to see how the disease is going to declare itself. And as Dr. Chu outlined, this has, has great quality of life implications for our patients. It has important implications for physicians as stewards of the healthcare system that we can now tell our patients with some confidence that there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, you've got a little swelling on your OCT, but your vision's pretty good. Let's just step back and, and follow you again with the caveat that we that you need to come back. And I think patients are going to really embrace these findings. And it's, uh, I, I would agree with the comment that was made earlier. This is a very important study on multiple levels. Dr. Shu, any final words before we break? No, I think you've covered it quite well. I, I totally agree that this is a study with great impact for all of us, the patients, the clinicians, and, and, and our health care costs. So I think that money spent on clinical trials is well spent because we save money in the end. So I think it's important to keep that goal in mind while we do clinical trials. They provide wonderful guidelines. This is level one evidence, a great way of, of looking after our patients with good vision, yet with macroedema that involves a center. Well, Dr. Chu and Dr. Williams, thanks so much for your time. And again, for the listeners, we'll put a link up to the paper if people want to read. And there'll be plenty of coverage, I'm sure, in the next months and, and more sub-analyses, I'm sure, that will come in the future uh, from this very important landmark study. Thank you both. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 168 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. You will also find our blog, Equal Round and Reactive, Lessons from Our Pupils. Here's a huge update. You can now claim CME credits for select podcast episodes via the AAO website. Simply log in as an AAO member and visit the link in the episode description. Also on the website, you can sign up for our mailing list to get updates on the most recent episodes. At the bottom are links to subscribe in the Apple Podcast Store as well as Google Play. You can also like our Facebook page or find us in the Apple Podcast Store and Google Play. We're on Twitter at Retina Podcast, and to contact us, click on the contact us link on our website or email us at retinapodcast at gmail.com. We really love getting feedback on things we're doing better. We can do better, things we're already doing well. We also appreciate any who subscribes in the Apple Store or Android Store who, who leaves their positive comments in the form of a review. Many thanks to DRCRNet and Dr. Sun and Baker for joining me, as well as Dr. Chu and Dr. Williams for their commentary. Thanks to Dr. Louis Kai, who put this episode together in a speedy fashion and produced it on a weekday while working as a busy intern. Finally, thank you, listeners, for what you do on a daily basis, the patient care you provide, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire. This is Jay Schrader, signing off. Feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs>